Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, we presented a program in partnership with the Cultural Services of the French Embassy. The panel discussed the American versus French constitutions with a focus on freedom of religion in the two countries. Jeffrey Rosen was joined by French scholars Mathilde-Philippe Gay and Denis Lacorne, and American scholars Jonathan Lawrence and Michael McConnell. Here's Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution. Um, I'm so thrilled to actually be at the Constitution Center for the first time uh, since the quarantine. And with the beautiful building surrounding me, we can recite together our mission statement to gird ourselves for the learning ahead. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. I am thrilled that today's program is presented in partnership with the cultural services of the French Embassy as part of a series on freedom of religion and speech in France and the United States. I'm so grateful to our wonderful partners at the Embassy for their uh, collaboration, and I'm much looking forward to a series of programs that will spread a huge amount of light about the similarities and differences between our great constitutions of freedom and liberté. I'm now really thrilled to introduce our panelists, a dream team of constitutional thinkers about religious freedom and French and American constitutionalism. Mathilde Philippe Gay is Doctor of Law and Lecturer at the Université of Jean Moulin, Lyon III in France, where she's co-director of the Center for Constitutional Law. She's the author of many articles, including the book Droit de laïcité, Secular Law, which we will be discussing today. Uh, Denis Lacorne is senior fellow at the Centre d'études et des recherches internationales at Sciences Po. His recent book is The Limits of Tolerance, Enlightenment Value, and Religious Fanaticism and Religion in America, a Political History. Um, and uh, it's such such a great pleasure to, to see him today. Jonathan Lawrence is Professor of Political Science at Boston College, the author of many books, including Coping with Defeat, Sunni Islam, Roman Catholicism, and the Modern State. Uh, and Michael McConnell is the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School and a senior fellow at Hoover, uh, a former judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, America's uh, leading scholar of religious liberty, and the author most recently of a superb book we recently discussed on the We the People podcast, The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution, and his forthcoming book, Establishment of Religion, Neutrality, Accommodation, and Separation, which will be published this year. Michael, I can't keep up with you, and I cannot wait to read and learn from your next book. Uh, Denis, I'm going to begin with you, if I may. The um, French Assemblée is debating a new law for strengthening Republican institutions that would, among other things, prohibit the wearing of the hijab by students under the age of 18. Tell us about this new law and what provisions it includes that are relevant to our discussion today. Yeah, just um, maybe a quick reminder. Uh, there's already a law that passed in 2004 that prohibits the hijab in public schools. And then another law passed in uh, 2010 
which bans the niqab, uh, the wearing the niqab or the burqa in the public space, all the public space. And uh, in the continuation of those, uh, I would call restrictive laws, um, there's uh, the, the new bill, which uh, has just passed the Senate and it's coming back to the, the National Assembly, uh, prohibits, would prohibits if it's adopted, um, students from wearing uh, the hijab in stadiums, uh, in any athletic activities or gym classes, and would prohibit wearing the burkini in swimming pools, uh, and also would prohibit special hours for women in a swimming pool, uh, distinct from men. So that's the uh, uh, the provision. And of course, the big question is: is that new? possible prohibition compatible with French law and with French case law. And uh, I think it's open to question. It's, it's quite possible that either the Conseil d'État in France or the top constitutional court would object to those uh, restrictions. After all, university students in France can wear a hijab. There's no prohibition on, on that. Uh, and there are many places where uh, uh, another provision, before I forget, is that the new law as drafted would also prohibit uh, private citizens, women who accompany students from public school to extra school outdoor activities like visiting a park or visiting a zoo. Um, those women, even though they are not public employee, would also prohibited uh, from wearing the hijab. So that's that's the uh, uh, the questions that are raised. Fascinating. Thank you for setting them up so well. Michael, I, I think I'll ask you, if a similar law were adopted in the United States, forbidding high school students, for example, from wearing a hijab, would it be consistent with the First Amendment according to established case law? And, and why or why not? It wouldn't be a hard case. It would be struck down immediately. Uh, it, it has two big problems. The first is a discrimination against a particular sect. Uh, if there were some kind of a neutral law that you know required every student's face to be uh, exposed, maybe that would at least, that would raise a free exercise problem, but not a not a sect discrimination problem, but specifically outlawing something in the terms of its religious significance, it, it, it wouldn't last an hour. It's just completely contrary to, to our understanding of freedom of religion. Now, if there were some kind of a neutral rule about you know, having face exposure, whatever, then we would have a harder case. Uh, and it would depend, uh, at least in part, on whether there are serious secular uh, reasons for that. And my guess is that it wouldn't, it wouldn't pass that, but at least it would be uh, you know, I, I, there would at least be some arguments. Fascinating. Um, Mathilde, Denis said that it was an open question under French law whether or not this bill would or would not be consistent with the French Constitution. Tell us about the arguments on both sides, what the, what the Constitution says and what the case law is that would, judges would consult in thinking this question through. Um, yes, but maybe uh, I, I really agree with what Denis uh, just said. But I have two things to say. Uh, first, it's not only the hijab, uh, but all the religious signs um, which could be banned by the new law. It's not only hijab, it's not only Muslim signs, okay? And secondly, um, maybe uh, this is the Senate, just the French Senate, um, 
who voted uh, the ban. And the Senate is the second chamber. So um, I think that the second chamber, l'Assemblée la, Nationale, won't vote the same law. Uh, the government has also announced that it's against it. And uh, I expect that the second chamber will vote against the ban. So maybe there was a vote tonight, it's true, but I'm not sure that it will pass in the, at last. I think that uh, the, the Assemblée Nationale, the French second chamber, won't vote the ban. It's against constitution, but I think it's against uh, political uh, view. I, the government announced that it was against it. And, and tell us why, why the government believes that it's against the constitution. What principles of the French constitution does it violate? I think it's not uh, the, directly the constitution. It's maybe the French tradition. Uh, French tradition is to ban uh, religious signs, but also political signs and commercial signs from uh, schools, from public schools. But um, the, 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 the will is uh, to uh, ban religious signs for young children, not for students. For young children, because uh, one of a philosopher named Condorcet, Condorcet is an old philosopher in France, um, always says, uh, always wrote that uh, parents uh, must uh, choose the religion uh, for their children and not the school. So the idea is to ban religious signs for the kids, but uh, it, it, just for the young kids, not for the students, to protect the right to their parents to uh, choose their own religious um, belief or religious education. I don't know if I'm <laughs> really clear. So uh, that's why um, I think it's against French tradition. And it's, again, French constitution, because a constitution uh, do not accept uh, the, the general and absolute banning and the general and absolute um, uh, ban of liberties. So I think it would be against constitution. It's against tradition and against constitution. The first article of constitution, of French constitution. Fascinating. You, you just said against tradition, which dating back to Condorcet gives parents the right to choose the religion of their parents and against the constitution, which doesn't allow this absolute banning of liberties. Very thoughtful. Jonathan, you've just heard your colleagues compare and contrast the American and French approaches to this uh, bill for strengthening Republican institutions, which turns out to be complicated for the reasons everyone said. How would you, um, based on what you've heard so far, compare and contrast the American and French constitutional approaches to the wearing of a, to, to, to bans on the wearing of a hijab? Well, I, I would say the, the most comparable practice in the United States context might be the banning of something like gang colors uh, in uh, county schools or certain school districts, um, <clears throat> which I believe those sorts of prohibitions were upheld because the clothing or the colors were seen as uh, divisive in nature uh, and indeed to be a matter of public order. Uh, and I suppose this gets down to the question of what is considered an issue of public order uh, and where. Uh, in, in France, religion is most certainly considered a, a, a matter of public order, whereas perhaps in the United States, it is primarily uh, an issue of public liberties. 
the United States in its founding mythology was uh, indeed founded as uh, a place for the freedom of religion to uh, be different than simply the religion of state. Uh, in France, the Republic's founding myth is that it was founded to be free from religion, to be fr free from the, the Catholic Church in particular, which at the time was a very reactionary uh, and, of course, anti-Republican force. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is uh, simply the degree of state centralization in a system like the French versus the federal nature of the United States and the localized um, sort of level at which these sorts of policies um, might be held. But the, the, the reason why the, the headscarf um, has been so divisive in France has not necessarily been because more and more girls are wearing the headscarf or because more and more women are wearing the headscarf. It's also because it's become a, a, a cultural uh, flashpoint around which political parties mobilize so that the very presence and visibility of Muslims and of Islam in the public sphere has, in some cases, caused the far-right National Front, the National Rally Party, as it's now called, to rise. And so to preempt the rise of the far right, there have been centrist parties in the French political system that have tried to show that they can be tough enough on where religion overflows into the public sphere so that the electorate doesn't need to take the extreme uh, 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 a sort of choice of, of voting for the far right. The problem is that the electorate often uh, prefers the original to the copy. Thank you so much for that. Thanks for calling our attention to that crucial language in the Declaration of the Rights of Man from 1789, the French Constitution, which says, no one shall be disquieted on account of his opinions, including his religious views, provided their manifestation does not disturb the public order established by law. And you talked about that distinction between freedom to religion and freedom from religion in the U.S. and French traditions. Denis, let's step back. You have written such important books about the philosophical and historical sources of the French uh, conception of freedom of religion and the evolution of different ideas of toleration over time. Parse that language about public order established by law, and tell us what did the framers of the Declaration of Rights in mind have in mind? What, what conception of religious freedom, toleration, and uh, religious liberty were they, were they trying to achieve? Yeah, what, what's uh, fascinating here is, uh, and it's, uh, the history of it is not terribly well known, not even in France. Uh, it's um, the Article 10 of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. No one shall be threatened for their opinions, including religious opinions, provided that their manifestation does not challenge the public order established by law. So uh, clearly, all religious opinions are allowed. Uh, that's part of the secular uh, tradition, including, by the way, manifestation, provided that they do not challenge public order. And what's interesting is that is the second half of the sentence. The initial draft was no one should be threatened for their opinions, including religious opinions, period. And at the time in 1789, when that was debated in the National Assembly, a, a very conservative Catholic lobby organized by 
Bishop uh, Goebel, uh, an Alsatian from Strasbourg, who was the Bishop of, of Lod in Palestine, in particular Bishop, and the Can de Verrier thought that that was not good enough. And they objected to the, uh, the first draft. And they insisted that the ad, be added the phrase, provided that their manifestation does not challenge the public order. Now, what does that mean in the context of the time? At the time, there was tremendous fear of proselytizing. Tremendous fear that once all religions are legally existing, the Protestants would take advantage of the Catholics and proselytize in areas of France, region of France, where you had no Catholic. So in order to prevent um, religious visibility demonstrations by Protestants, they added the phrase, provided their manifestation doesn't challenge a public order, meaning essentially the Catholic-controlled public order. So that was the restrictive nature of that law. And, and oddly enough, with the rise of secularism at the end of the 19th century and the 20th century, um, that law, that sec- segment was used against the, uh, uh, the Catholic Church and not against the Protestants. So it, it's kind of an irony in history. But that's, that's a very important uh, 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 document. Then there are other interesting sources that we may allude to. Uh, for instance, uh, historically, there's uh, Jefferson's bill establishing religious freedom in Virginia that was drafted in 1777 and then passed as a law in 1786, precisely at a time when Jefferson becomes an ambassador to France. And that's a fundamental law that excited the French a great deal before the French Revolution. Uh, 1786, three years before the French Revolution, the French discussed Jefferson's bill establishing religious freedom, with which, to be very short, in fact, disestablished the Anglican Church in Virginia and uh, prohibits the, any kind of payments to subsidize uh, clerics or to subsidize um, uh, religious schools. So that was a, a first form, if you wish, of the separation of church and state applied to Virginia. And the French were very excited about it, published a translation of that bill immediately in 1786 in de Meunier's um, um, Encyclopédie Méthodique. So we discussed, in a way, secularism three years before the French Revolution. And, and in many ways, the Americans were ahead of the French on the question of laïcité. Fascinating. Michael, a, a, a large question to you. As Denis just said, both the French and American constitution makers are influenced by the natural rights tradition of the Enlightenment. Uh, both uh, have read uh, Jefferson on religious freedom, and yet their constitutional guarantees are very different. Are you able to compare and contrast the original understanding of the American and French provisions uh, regarding religious freedom? Uh, so that's a very big question, but I'll, I'll make a, a couple of brief contrasts. One is that the French provisions focus on opinion, and I gather from what Denis just said, uh, that almost passed as a, as a freestanding proposition. The American provision refers to the free exercise of religion, which goes well beyond opinion. It, it, it's even, I think, well beyond manifestation, 
to actually, uh, according to the Virginia Declaration of Rights, it's it's the the manner of uh, of doing your duty to God. So this it's a much broader uh, conception, much more active, uh, ha- having to do with uh, you know with putting your 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 religion into practice. This idea that proselytization is a problem is is completely foreign to the American experience. Uh, Jefferson's bill, for example, I'm, I'm surprised if it, if it was so influential that, that people didn't quote it against this conservative Catholic position because Jefferson specifically, his bill specifically uh, guarantees the right, uh, people shall be uh, free to profess and by arguments to maintain their opinions in all matters of religion. And that means you know, proselytization is perfectly fine. And then finally, a political point, you mentioned the natural rights tradition of the Enlightenment, which certainly was an important part of the American uh, campaign against established religion and for free exercise of religion. But it was supplemented, and indeed, in terms of actual popular opinion, overwhelmed by the Protestant tradition, which taught which which came to the same conclusions, but from theological uh, grounds rather than natural rights grounds, and it had to do with the supreme importance of people being able to perform their duties to God. And in Virginia and elsewhere, it was the most evangelical, most intensely religious elements of American society who were the leading uh, political. Uh, uh, advocates of disestablishment. Well, fascinating, wonderful encapsulation of, a, as you say, a very large question. And that distinction between the natural rights and the, and the Protestant tradition is extremely important. Uh, Mathilde, you have written a book about laïcité and tell us what its essential qualities are and how it is relevant in French constitutionalism today. Legally, uh, if you take a look of the principle of French laicity, you can think that American secularism and French laicity are quite closed. Um, the most common definition of French laicity uh, was given by, in fact, the Council of State, the French Conseil d'État. And he said that there, there are three principles. First, the state neutrality. It's like in U.S., apparently, huh? State neutrality. But in France, this is, it means strict neutrality of public servants, neutrality of public schools. So it's very uh, special. The second, um, the second principle is, in fact, and Denis shows it, the freedom of thinking and the freedom of belief or not belief. Uh, it's the second principle. But there is a, a third principle, very important. This is equality and pluralism. And uh, for this uh, principle, the most important judge is not French, is European. There is the European Court of Human Rights, which is um, the most important court to uh, pay the, the respect to this freedom of thinking. And for the court, the court said that um, it's very, uh, it, it is part of the democracy to let everyone believe, not believe, being indifferent, agnostic, as you want, but plurality is very uh, important. So this is the legal definition of laicity. 
But laicity is not only in France a legal principle. It's also a philosophical and political principle. And if you take the definition, the political definition of laicity, you will, uh, you will have some writers who thinks that uh, French laicity is atheism in the public sphere. Um, uh, and if you take some other writers, uh, you will find that laicity is like interculturalism, even multiculturalism. So uh, there is a legal definition which is very different from the political definition. And the political definition, you find it in the text that has been adopted tonight. This is a very political definition of laicity. Uh, which is uh, who wants to ban uh, public uh, prayers from the university, public science from the university and from the public sphere. Uh, but the political um, conception or the political uh, principle is not the legal principle. So if you take uh, the example of the Burkini, you remember the Burkini when it was, when this Burkini was banned by a lot of Myers on the French uh, beaches, there was a lot of ban of Burkini. Uh, this is a political uh, ban. But the French Council of State decided for all the ban that it was forbidden by the Constitution. So, in fact, the ban was not legal. Uh, we really have to make the difference between the legal laicity, the French laicity, which is not so different, I, I assume what I say, but it's not so different from the American uh, secularism and the political one, which is uh, can be very hard, very uh, difficult uh, for the religion. Fascinating. So helpful that you gave us these three principles of legal laicite, which was embraced in this uh, 2004 report, uh, as you mentioned, first neutrality of the state with regard to religion or belief, second religious freedom respecting public order, uh, and third pluralism, which directs the state not to overlook any religion, even if it doesn't recognize a religion. So, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you the tough question that uh, Mathilde just raised. Do you agree or disagree that when it comes to the legal or constitutional definition? that there's not a great difference between French laicite and American, I don't know what you want to call it, separationism? Uh, that's a contested term. Or do you think that there is a greater difference between the two constitutional traditions than uh, she suggests? Uh, well, I think the problem isn't necessarily with the American concept of freedom or with the French concept of laicite, but rather in their application. So each of these countries has a major original sin. Um, the problem with American freedom was never its conceptualization. The problem was that there was slavery. There was, there was a problem with its realization. Um, American religious pluralism, by contrast, is now a very, uh, a very uh, equally applied principle. If you, if you want to... Uh, you know, look at one example of the suspension of alternate parking rules in major cities. You have everybody's religion in there um, as being recognized. The French original sin in this context may well be colonialism in the majority Muslim world. 
because the great concept of laicite, as it was elaborated over the course of the 19th and earliest 20th century, was simply not applied to the many tens of millions of subjects who were Muslim living under French rule. And that was for strategic reasons having to do with fears of Ottoman influence and fears of British influence over there, French Muslims. But the effect of this is that it seems like France is encountering Islam for the first time in the 1980s, which is absolutely false. That is a full century of encounters before that. It just chose to treat it as an object of realpolitik. The question now has become one of immigrant integration, but even more importantly, the perception of immigrant integration and the security issues that are very real and that are very related to the reality of a very politicized religion in some parts of the world and even in some parts of France and the links of that to violence are real. However, there is a grand simplification that takes place. And you could say that is partly the product of the exigencies of democratic politics, unfortunately, that politicians are responsive to fears. And in some cases, they even help generate those fears for their own electoral advantage. Thank you. Very helpful uh, distinction between the principles themselves and their application rooted in different uh, historical and contemporary experience and um, uh, well worth uh, picking up on many of those points. Thanks to those who are adding uh, questions and uh, thanks to John Meter for um, giving us the texts of the Georgia, Connecticut and New Hampshire revolutionary era state constitutions, which do have public order exceptions. New Hampshire, you can free, freely exercise uh, provided you do not disturb the public peace or disturb others in their religious worship. Um, and you can find those texts on the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution um, and compare and contrast. Uh, let's go back to a contemporary issue. Denis, the U.S. Supreme Court has been ruling in favor of uh, religious liberty, in particular exemptions from uh, laws regarding uh, COVID uh, for uh, non-religious uh, businesses um, that don't include uh, churches and other places of religious worship. So just last week, the court, by a uh, divided vote, held that a state could not um, ban gatherings of 30 people that affected religious institutions because 30 people weren't prohibited from gathering in non-religious businesses. Have there been in France any religiously based challenges to COVID quarantine orders? Um, how have they been and, and, and how would French courts uh, deal with requests by religious institutions for exemptions from generally applicable laws? Yeah, um, there has been um, complaints from religious authorities. Uh, in the first phase, the first hard uh, COVID lockdown last year in uh, March, April, uh, uh, until June, um, uh, complaints about the fact that churches were treated like a regular business and that was shocking for religious authorities. So they complained about it. Did they go to court? Uh, 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 I'm not sure. I don't think so, but that should be checked. And then later today, uh, we have a third lockdown, and the public authorities have a milder, uh, soften their position. And now you can attend a religious service, but you have to respect uh, uh, a limited number of people depending on the size of the church 
or the cathedral. So you have to keep space and a limited number of people for that, for funeral as well, for for wedding. You cannot have a big crowd and, and without precaution, wearing a mask and respecting social distance. So, uh, but we know that particularly among traditional Catholics, uh, the traditional Catholics have not respected those recommendations by the government and have been fined recently for not doing uh, the kind of precautions that scientists and the government were asking them to do. And there has been pictures, which you've seen in the media in the past couple of weeks, of traditional Catholics massing in, 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 in a small church, chanting and, and not taking any kind of precaution. And uh, I believe they were fined, not heavily, but they had to, at least the priests had to pay a significant fine for not respecting government instructions. But to my knowledge, nothing came out in the court uh, court system. Michael, you you more than any other scholar have helped to influence the modern Supreme Court's conception of religious liberty. Describe for for our audience the reasoning of the justices who have held that uh, COVID restrictions that don't treat religious institutions the same as similarly situated secular institutions uh, violate the Constitution. And 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 again, compare and contrast. Could 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 priests in the U.S. be fined for not restricting COVID restrictions? And and does the difference stem from constitutional differences or from, as you were suggesting before the show, a different attitude toward experts and authority? Well, I think that the 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 key point of reasoning in the Supreme Court's recent decisions uh, is that uh, the government cannot. Uh, when it decides which activities are essential and can be allowed even under COVID, that it can't put religion down at the bottom of the list. That uh, if other things like casinos and uh, and and big box stores and and things of this sort are allowed to operate with many people, uh, that the the churches may think that they are not quote essential. Uh, unquote. And, and the First Amendment answers the question of essentiality. Uh, the public health questions are, of course, uh, to be determined by the government and the public health uh, um, uh, author- uh, you know, uh, authorities. Uh, but if it's okay for casinos and big box stores to have lots of people, then the public health authorities have spoken and the only question is why churches should be treated any uh, differently than this. Now, I do think culturally there's also a difference between Europeans in general, perhaps, perhaps particularly French, I'm not sure, uh, and Americans skeptical of the sort of bureaucratic expert of uh, uh, people at the top, we're not always convinced that they are as objective as um, as they may claim to be. And, and I think this played out very big uh, in a big way in uh, litigations, especially say New York, where the churches and synagogues were able to show that when they were open over the summer, there had not been a single outbreak tra- of COVID being shut down. Uh, 
They wanted to know, well, what's the expert opinion? What really is the science behind saying that we're a problem when there hasn't been any problem? Uh, and, you know, the court doesn't really overturn the public health expertise, but I think the skepticism about this may have caused the court to be more uh, aggressive in its um, demand for an equality of treatment uh, than it might otherwise have been. Mathilde, um, in her dissenting opinion in the recent case uh, on April 9th uh, from California, Justice Elena Kagan said, California limits religious gathering in homes to three households. If the state also limits all secular gatherings in homes to three households, it is complied with the First Amendment, and the state has done exactly that. Uh, the law does not require that the state equally treat apples and watermelons. So she essentially said it was okay for the state to ban in-home religious gatherings, as well as it also banned in-home non-religious gatherings. How would, how would a French court deal with a similar ban on religious gatherings in the home? And is there more discretion in the French constitution to have COVID lockdowns that don't make exemptions or exceptions for religious institutions? Um, we have quite, maybe I will answer to Michael, uh, and answering to you too, because in France, we have the same debate. You know, uh, the THs and the churches have closed last March. On May 18th, the French Council of State considered that religious freedom is fundamental and that the churches must remain open while respecting health um, precautions. And Theatres have tried to reach a similar decision. So they asked the Council of State to reopen. But the Council of State said um, the, the culture is not a fundamental uh, freedom. It's a fundamental right. There is a right of culture, but there is not a freedom of culture. So the theatres must, uh, can remain, remain closed. So, if you, um, if we think about this decision, you can, you can see that in France, religion, uh, freedom of religion is above the, the others, uh, others liberties and the rights of culture. I don't know if I'm clear or not, but, um, the churches can reopen, must reopen for the French Council of State because the freedom of uh, religion is very important, but the theater can remain closed. Uh, so it's uh, interesting to see that for the French judges, religious of freedom is above the others. So, um, uh, so sorry, yes, I will stop here. No, that's a very important uh, distinction between the rights of theaters, uh, which are below those of churches, and the theaters can remain shut sooner than the uh, churches. Um, but Jonathan, may the state prohibit churches from opening as long as it prohibits similarly situated uh, non-religious gatherings in France? Uh, my, my, my sense is that the law of religious exemptions is more robust in America than in France. And of course, there are many other well-known examples, including most famously, we have in the Q&A box a question from uh, one of our friends about how France would deal with the question of the baker who didn't want to bake the cake for the 
How would France deal with the case of the baker who didn't believe in marriage equality and refused to bake a case for a same-sex couple? That's a question from our friend Bonnie Zetek. Can you compare and contrast the French and American uh, approach to religious exemptions more generally? Um, yes. Well, I, I would say that I, I read some complaints from French bishops uh, about the restrictions, uh, uh, criticizing them as un, unduly harsh and, and, and reminding them in a sort of institutional memory kind of way of the anti-clericalism of the Third Republic, that the last time they faced such state repression uh, was, was back in the, in, in the late 19th century. But of course, since then, there's been a grand settlement between the state and Catholicism, including the rupture of 1905 and the rupture of laicite, but also they made up, right? They, they reestablished relations between France and, and the Vatican uh, once it was established as a nation state, and since then have been building in exceptions to French laicite for the vast majority of French citizens who are, of course, of Catholic origin. So one of the first ways this happened was the chartering of parochial schools, confessional schools, with support from the French state for their costs. Uh, that is why laïcité, in some ways, has come to be seen as catholaïcité, because it has a Catholic inflection that even though it's true, for example, Muslim girls who wanted to wear a headscarf could simply opt not to go to public school, but unlike Catholic girls or Jewish boys or what have you, there aren't very many Muslim schools for them to go to. Whereas thanks to the settlement that France has made with other religious communities, you do have ample institutions that are available. But all both countries have, have limits to religious freedom, especially when it concerns public health. Um, in the United States, uh, you're allowed to be a member of Scientology, uh, but I have read of court cases in, in Florida where uh, if dehydration occurs in, in, in the course of certain treatments, then the state may intervene and, and take custody to uh, make sure that the person is properly hydrated. In France, you may be a, a Jehovah's Witness, but if you refuse to uh, uh, use a, uh, the opportunity of a blood transfusion to save the life of your child, the state may temporarily take custody uh, of your child. Now, of course, the, the, the extreme way that this can go is that the modern state also claims custody of your children, of course, between the ages of six and 16. That's called universal public education. What France is doing, which is new with this law on separatism, is to make that, that floor, that age, a little bit lower, saying that the state essentially wants your children to be exposed to the common project of the republic, of the nation, earlier in order to prevent other influences from creeping in. Now, of course, you know, a lot of this is simply in the eye of the beholder and how much you uh, evaluate the danger of state encroachment versus the danger of, of say, religious totalitarianism. And, you know, you could, you could make an elaborate argument for, um, for either case. Very interesting and a good, uh, important contrast between the French effort to protect students from the influence of religion at an early age and the American emphasis, which in recent years has been more on religious neutrality uh, when it comes to schools and treating religious and non-religious uh, schools on equal terms. Denis, um, you've written such important books. I have them here. L'invention de la République américaine, de la religion en Amérique, la crise de l'identité américaine. When you think of the 
evolution of the American approach to religious liberty. We've talked about the founding, but I want to talk about today. Many observers have noted, Adam Liptak had a piece in the New York Times uh, just last week, that religious liberty is winning at the U.S. Supreme Court more frequently than at any time in its history. So compare and contrast the American and French approaches to religious liberty today. And as an observer of the American scene, is religious liberty becoming more protected than it was a generation ago? And how does that compare with the evolution in France? Well, I would say in France, if you take a long historical perspective, laicite, secularism, initially was a kind of robust, uh, uh, even aggressive fighting secularism, uh, fighting against Catholic schools, fighting against teaching congregations. Uh, that's the way it started in the beginning of the 20th century. It was not a uh, you know, neutral, open laicite. And then you have the opposite uh, trend, the opposite type of laicite, which I would call a kind of open and accommodating laicite, which, for instance, as Jonathan just said, uh, was willing to finance the uh, uh, Catholic uh, parochial schools, uh, even though we had this strong principle of separation of church and state. And the problem today is that we have, uh, it often happens before important elections, particularly presidential elections. There's always a trend to toughen the laicite, make it more uh, anti-religious before an important presidential election in order to, uh, to show that potential candidates are not going to be, uh, um, uh, or, or, or rather will will have a good image vis-à-vis the extreme right, which remains most influential in France. But uh, separation of church and state means uh, is not, as was just said, not as strict as it seems. And when you have a return to a robust laicite, which is very much what happens with the, the law that we've been discussing, the law for strengthening Republican principle, what's interesting, and it's a new phenomenon in France today, uh, it's a law that has been criticized not just by lawyers, but also by religious groups. Uh, there was a, a petition signed by Catholic bishop, Protestant reverence, and uh, Orthodox priests against the law, saying uh, that it was, a, in fact, a threat to free speech and a threat to the free exercise of religion and a kind of regression to the older time when uh, you had a concordat, when you had at the time in Napoleon, uh, a concordat signed between the state and the heads of different churches regulating religion. And so this kind of protest is rare in France. You don't see it too often. And you have, in fact, now a kind of coalition of Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox priests who are, in fact, appealing for a restoration of a more peaceful, open, accommodating laicite, and they are concerned about the kind of toughening that we see with the impending law on strengthening of Republican principle. And what, what's at stake for those organizations? Not that much, actually, because there's no real threat against Catholic churches or Protestant temples. But what's at, at, at stake is those organizations have um, philanthropic organizations, which they deal, and those philanthropic organizations with under law would be harder to manage. Uh, they would be, they would have to commit themselves, for instance, to accepting 
uh, Republican principle and secular values, which they haven't done before. So it would make it a little more complicated. It would be more complicated to get subsidies to build or repair a school or a mosque, so on and so forth. So you have, you know, separation of church and state, but also an ongoing conflict between church and state. uh, And that's an interesting development. Indeed, and that thank you for emphasizing that conflict, which has led to precisely the edge cases that you describe. Um, Michael, I'm eager for your response to Adam Liptak's article. His statistics uh, said that there was a 35% increase in the rate of rulings in favor of religion in orally argued cases, culminating in an 81% success rate in the court. Uh, Liptak quoted scholars saying that this had a partisan valence, that not a single judge appointed by Democrats sided with religion, while 66% of judges appointed by Republicans did. And he quoted uh, Professor uh, Elena Kagan of accusing the court's conservatives of weaponizing the First Amendment to use free expression to intervene in economic and regulatory policy. I I, um, believe that you have a different take on these recent decisions. How would you account for them and, and why do you think they're correct? Well, I'm, I'm very skeptical of counting cases this way because uh, the only way you know, you have to compare this to the background culture and what's going on. Uh, and uh, one of the things that's happened in the United States with our increasing ideological polarization is that that has spilled over also into questions of religion. It was, you know, there was a time when it was the liberal progressive justices on the Supreme Court who were the great defenders of uh, of religious freedom. But in, in more recent times, the left has become he- heavily secularized. Uh, uh, the, the numbers on this, I don't, I can't, you know, quote the actual numbers, but the polling data, you know, indicate that people who are self-identified as progressive have are now much less likely to be religious and, and often uh, contrary to religion than they were in the past. And this uh, has the effect that there are now um, uh, laws in progressive, you know, passed in cities and progressive uh, places that are, you know, uh, uh, that prohibit religious practice that would never have been passed 20 years ago. And I think that is bringing a, an entirely different uh, set of cases uh, to the court. Uh, and it is also true then, and I, I don't think Liptak is wrong uh, to say that, that you know, what the, it is more the conservative justices who are now defending uh, religious liberty uh, on the court. But uh, he overlooks how widespread, even some of the most important religious freedom cases in the Supreme Court have been either unanimous or seven to two recently. The, uh, you know, unanimous decision that uh, religious organizations are able to um, uh, uh, hire and fire ministers and even religious teachers uh, uh, without regard even to discrimination laws, unanimous decisions in favor of protecting the rights of Muslim prisoners uh, to wear beards and, and similar uh, uh, practices uh, as that, uh, unanimous uh, decision uh, requiring that a government action be overturned unless it uh, that that impedes the practice of religion in the absence of a compelling governmental interest. So, 
let's not overlook the the fact that there is still a large reservoir, especially within the law, of support for freedom of religion across the board, and it's not all a left-right thing. Thank you for reminding us of those unanimous and seven to two decisions and the fact that the partisan valences are complicated. Um, Mathilde and Jonathan, too, I think these will be the final uh, interventions just because we always end on time. But we have so many good questions. I'm just going to read a bunch of them. And Mathilde, pick one or so that you'd, you'd like to respond to. Mark Weinstein says many European countries ban kosher slaughter and some localities are banning circumcision of babies. Would such bans survive in France? And what would happen if such bans in other countries were upheld by the European court? And Elizabeth Bailey says, how has France dealt with the teaching of Islam in schools, but have banned any Christian symbolism in schools? Either of those questions would be great to hear your thoughts on. In France, there is um, a, a general ban of uh, science in school, but um, maybe I, I I speak against as a jurist. Maybe uh, when you speak about French laicite, uh, we must not forget that French laicite still accepts diversity and is not a uniform system. That means that um, they are part of the French territory where the law is not exactly the same uh, that in the other parts of the territory. For example, in Alsace-Moselle, for historical reason, I don't know if you know it, but there are four, four statutory uh, religions, Catholic, Protestants, and uh, Jewish, um, which can exercise the public service of religion. And in the school, they are never been secular there, and one hour of religious instruction uh, is dispensed every week in elementary school, and there are some um, Catholic science or Jewish science in the school. You can have religious science at school. Um, so we must uh, always think that laicity is also a diversity uh, system, not a uniform system. Uh, overseas, you have a, a part of the territory named Mayotte. It's a department. A French department, it's a part of the territory, uh, where 80% of the population is Muslim. And in this part of the territory, you have also, um, uh, find you have also the, the public authorities, which, uh, can pay some Muslim judges to, uh, inter to help the judges. Uh, to mediate before going to court, and they are paid by the French public authorities. So um, all, all that I can say is that uh, we must be careful when we speak about French laicity law, because there is a diversity and not a uniform system. Uh, but to, uh, to return to the <laughs> debate uh, of before, I must say that there is, um, uh, in addition to the penalization movement, uh, there is also a help through the law and political authorities, uh, try to finance the cults and the, of uh, some formations of the cults. And French law prohibits discrimination, but they accept also religious companies. So we must really be careful because there is a lot of different uh, cases and different, uh, inf if you compare, uh, you have to take care of the part of the territory where is uh, the case you want to, to interfere. I don't know if I'm clear. 
Very clear. And thank you for reminding us. We, we have the same thing, of course, in America with the federal system, and the result of the case may depend on the state or département in which you're bringing the case. Jonathan, I leave you with a very difficult assignment, which is to sum up this completely fascinating discussion, basically in a minute or two at the most, because we are at time, and I will let you do that in whatever way you think best. What final thoughts would you like to leave our friends with about similarities and differences between French and American approaches to religious liberty? Uh, well, I, w I did want to take up just the the last couple of questions, which I thought were were also quite good about um, the, the the issues of circumcision and 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 animal slaughter, uh, because it is it is revelatory of of certain threats, but also certain realities of uh, religious freedom in in Europe. Uh, both halal slaughter and Islamic circumcision have been targeted, in fact, by bills and proposals in in many European countries, um, and they have been defeated uh, largely because uh, the slaughter, animal slaughter and circumcision rituals are virtually identical to uh, the Jewish um, uh, kashruth and, uh, and brit milah. Uh, uh. So the irony is that the, um, the desire to protect Jewish religious freedoms in uh, Europe, which of course nearly lost its entire Jewish population during an actual genocide, just a couple generations ago, winds up protecting the religious rights and freedoms of successive generations, including some, some other population that no one expected would be in Europe today, which is uh, the, the tens of millions of, of North African and, and, and Arab origin citizens. Um, uh, just on the point of Islam in schools, I think that it is coming in uh, uh, slowly but surely as, again, part of the uh, constructive measures that come along with a lot of the repressive acts, such as banning headscarves. The same proposal that banned headscarves also made sure to include more information about Islamic history and more information about French Islamic history in particular. Thank you so much, Denis Lacan, uh, Michael McConnell, Mathilde Philippe Guy, and Jonathan Lawrence for a wonderful discussion, so rich, so informative about the similarities and differences between our great constitutional traditions. I really want to thank my colleague and friend, Vincent Michelot, the attaché for higher education at the French embassy, who conceived of this joint program between the embassy and the National Constitution Center. And we are much looking forward to our next program, which will compare and contrast freedom of the press and expression in the U.S. and France. And thanks to all of you for joining. Have a wonderful day. Merci and à bientôt. Bye, everyone. This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber, John Guerra, and Lana Ulrich. It was engineered by David Stotts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.